Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog owners, training professionals, and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior issues, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning and exploring to become better at what we do while also questioning each other and our own thoughts. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. Welcome back to Canine Classroom. I'm Anthony DeMarinas. I'm here with my buddy Vinny Viola. And today we have a special guest. We have Sue Sternberg here with us. Hey, Sue, how you doing? Good. How are you guys? What's going doing on? How are you? Good. Doing good. We're excited that you're here. We can't wait to jump into some interesting conversation with you, I'm sure. Yeah. So, um, so I want to first, uh, well, before actually I ask you, let me let me pull up your bio. Let's let's see what you're all about. Oh so the first question people always ask, I know you're going to read the bio, but they're always like, how do you want to be referred to? And that's that's where it ends. I'm like, I don't know, like I don't know, <laughs> dog trainer, uh, shelter person, um, no idea. How we need to fit you into a box. We need I to be know. able to put you in a box and have a nice label for you. <laughs> Here we go. He's already starting. <laughs> Stir the tomato sauce, Vinny. Stir the oh, tomato. Oh man, I had to spend the whole day with Anthony over here. So, um... <laughs> and he loved every second of it. By the way. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So Sue has been working in shelters and as a dog trainer since 1981. She was the 2016 recipient of the APDT's Lifetime Achievement Award. Sue's founded the shelter. The, the shelter featured in the 2003 HBO documentary, Shelter Dogs. I still haven't seen that for some reason. I got I to gotta figure out why I haven't seen that yet. So her, uh, her over 40 years of canine behavior experience includes as a dog control officer, behavior consultant at the ASPCA, shelter training and assessments avail. Uh, oh, excuse me. I skipped, uh, I skipped over a sentence, guys. Shelter owner. <laughs> excuse me, a successful competitor in a variety of dog sports and a teacher of dog trainers worldwide. She has published many books and DVDs on all aspects of dog behavior training and assessments available through www.dogwise.com and towserdog.com. Sue base, uh, basically is dog-based is a dog-based life form who has spent a partial lifetime uh, partial lifetime observing dog behavior and trying to make the shelter world a better place for dogs people and the community uh, and their community uh, sue does not feel as old as all that makes her sound what does that mean <laughs> wait sue does not feel as old as all that makes her sound oh okay thought i read that wrong he's and, having a hard time tonight with the bio i know i'm having a really hard time tonight What's going on? and believes i don't know why and i read this beforehand too which is why it's so embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> and believes she still has a lot left to achieve 
Sue's most recent DVD project is a giant lifetime video collection of discrete behaviors serving as a silent non-audible audio, audio catalog of body language over three hours of an intensive study guide uh, to dogs. The ethogram is what it's called. The ethogram of the dog is available through dogwise.com. Vinny and I were actually talking about that today that we have to, we have to get on that and look at that. Uh, currently, she spends as much time exploring the desert with her dogs looking for dinosaur bones and tracks as she does sitting in her in front of her laptop watching videos of the minutiae of dog behavior. She loves all the things of Star Trek, is an avid tea drinker, and plays the fiddle too. I was just saying to Vinny today. Now, first wow. of all, I apologize. I was so horrible how I read that, but <laughs> I apologize, everyone. I was just saying to Vinny today, we were talking about tea because he was going to get tea. I hate tea. Mm -hmm. I can't drink tea. I mean, I could drink it. I just hate it because I think of it as being sick because that's what I, my mother would give me when I was sick. Yeah. Yep. So every time I think of tea, drink tea, I think of being sick. So I can My girlfriend, I just have to say, my girlfriend was so mad when she found out that I went to a coffee shop with you today because she asked me to go to coffee shops all the time. And I'm always like, ah, I don't want to go to a coffee shop. And then she found out we went. <laughs> I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. No, but I'm a tea guy. I like Oh, tea. so she, so, oh, so she's pissed at you now that you went out to coffee. Yeah. And now, and now because of you, I'm probably going to have to go to a coffee shop again, but I'm going to have to I'll go with her this time. I'll text her later. I'll, I'll text her later. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny so um i you know i was listening to a podcast interview with you recently soon um fascinating to hear about all the dinosaur stuff you have found where you live i mean actually it's really interesting you've you have found i don't even know what they call it but you've found sites where dinosaurs have been like what like it's are oh. you finding bones or just like the outlines in the clay or um, so I, I, um, I, I find bones and I want to qualify it at first by saying that I do not dis I don't disturb things. I photograph, I GPS, I take notes and I report to either the Bureau of Land Management, or if it's a track, um, that I have found, I report it to a paleontologist in Colorado <clears throat> and, uh, so it's all very official. Like I do it, I do it for um, research. Although on you my can, own- I'm sorry, you could tell us yeah. that you're cloning dinosaurs in the basement. Like we're not going to tell anyone. Like we're not going <laughs> to, you're safe here. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and recently I found, I've been finding a bunch of dinosaur bones on my own land, which is really exciting. And um, like I have, I've gone back time and time again and I have, I think like nine vertebrae and they're really in good condition and they're the size of a dog. So it's oh wow, totally fascinating waiting wow. for the paleontologist to come and help me because it's on my own private land. So they're going to help me. I don't know. Find out where the, where, I don't know, the skeleton, this is the rest so of it. I have it. to ask because I, I was also listening that you're, you're getting into, or you've probably been in nose work. You've been doing oh. some nose work stuff. Have you been teaching the dogs to find the dinosaurs? Ooh, that's an interesting question. That's my next step. Is um, it really? Oh, yeah. So, so I, cool. I just introduced <laughs> pairing with my dog Chappie, who's nine and she's at the, you know, the, she reached so cool. the highest level of nose work. So I'm like, 
it's time to get her on bone. <laughs> oh yeah. I love that. Is that. So I was cool. dying to ask you that. I'm so happy yeah. that you're actually doing it. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's so cool. I know. Uh, the other thing that I find fascinating is you find, and I know this just from seeing your posts on Facebook, you find the most interesting rocks <laughs> and they look like food. You had one that looked like Italian sazich. Was I know, and wasn't that great when I when I uh, oh, Vinny, set up a Vinny, video you have to look that up. Vinny's shaking his head, but wait, no, we have to. Sue, do you have like do you have the one that looks like sausage there? Because like <laughs> leave her alone, she's not gonna. She had one. No, no, she had one. Like <laughs> I swear, I was looking at this photo one day, and I'm like, wow, she's uh, she's eating sazich. That like that that's so interesting. And I'm just looking at it, and then I read her post, and it's a rock, and I'm like. Get the hell out of here like i had to go back and look at him like it actually looks like sausage yeah yeah i um i have to find it I, I wouldn't be able to find it now but i made i think i made a tiny video and i had a like i yeah. cut open a summer sausage yes. whatever and yes, then i that's showed what it was the rock oh, and i man. clunk it right and because <laughs> yeah it was a comparison or something i'll <laughs> never forget that that was like a year or two ago a couple of years yeah <laughs> all right we gotta start talking about dogs all the people all right, are all right, probably, all right. what the heck is going on dinosaurs so, and all sausage right, so <laughs> he's always got to screw up the fun this guy <laughs> so um all right so you're you're well known in the industry in the dog trained behavior industry for really being known for temperament testing um dogs especially in rescue or shelters so going in and testing them to basically identify certain behaviors that they may or may not display. So I guess the first thing I want to touch on for, is really for the everyday regular dog owner, because I think one thing that Vinny and I see a lot of is there are a lot of dogs out there that have behavior issues, whether it's from a pet store a breeder, a puppy mill, or the shelter. And so specifically for those who want to rescue, want to adopt a dog, what are some things that the everyday dog owner should know? What should they be looking for? Um, how should they find the right family pet for themselves? And and like what what red flags should they be looking for that might be a concern for their home, whether it's just a single person, a, a family with children, a family with another dog, what, what, what should people be looking for? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the first thing is, I think it's hard to navigate this, the shelter and rescue world right now as a consumer, as an adopter, because um, there's no consistency um, anywhere. But um, it, the, if you're a family with young children, I would actually say don't go alone. Hire, hire a good trainer, behaviorist, somebody who has experience in assessment. You can ask them ahead of time and ask them to go with you. And understand that if you have young children under the age of eight in the home, that you may have to visit a shelter a few times, or you know it might take a few months working with different rescues to A, find the right dog and B, get your application, uh, you know, approved and, and whatever. So especially children under the age of eight, uh, families need to hire a professional to go with them. Um, 
some shelters have dog behavior professionals there. Um, they're probably probably not the the norm. Um, and most rescues wouldn't have that necessarily, especially available like at a foster home. So bringing a trainer is a good idea. Um, I know a lot of times what I do is have people send me videos as they're there, like they go to the foster home and they're sending me videos uh, through text. And I can, you know, I can say things like run screaming or, you know, <laughs> this is, we should, this looks good. You know, why don't you do this, this and this? And, you know, it seems good. Um, so one thing for the consumer initially is find out the shelter or the rescue group's return policy. And that, <clears throat> that might immediately make you seem like not a good committed <laughs> pet owner, but really if you, if you adopt or, um, bring home a dog and the dog is not right for you, your family or the environment or your other dog or your cat, um, you need to have a, um, a net, a safety net, and you need to be able to return, to return, um, the dog, uh, to the, or to its origin, um, for and safety. Maybe, maybe having, um, not to interrupt you, but maybe having a, maybe for those owners out there that are listening, maybe asking something, phrasing it a certain way might actually not make them look as committed right. or may, you know, so phrasing it, maybe something like in the event, this dog is not the right fit for my home or, right. or doesn't do well with my kids or whatever the case may right. be, or the other dog, if, yeah. if that's the case, what's your return policy? So maybe yeah. something like that, just to yeah. raise it nicely. So that way they, you know, the, the rescue doesn't, uh, yeah. yeah, doesn't. No, maybe... I, I like that. That's important. Cause you know, I record these podcasts or webinars and then I watch them afterwards and I'm like, crap, why didn't I say that? Or, oh, why? <laughs> don't worry, <laughs> Vinny and I have you, we're here. We're, <laughs> yeah. no, I appreciate that. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> And the next thing, I mean, I, I like going to a sh physical shelter rather than a uh, rescue, although I know that's hard. Um, <clears throat> and uh, because I like, like going, going down the row and being able to really see all the dogs and um, see if any, any one of them it, it sticks out or has, is making a connection. But the thing that I'll say, and then I'll describe how to recognize it. And it seems, it seems obvious and silly, but you want the friendliest dog. So what does friendly look like, right? You want a dog that is very sociable to humans and very um, drawn to and, and uh, attracted to humans. And, um, and that means um, a friendly dog isn't just like wagging his tail and panting. A dog who's wagging his tail and panting might be friendly, but they also might just be aroused or overexcited. Um, friendly is an action, right? So friendly is a dog coming up to you um, in a loose, uh, loose way. Loose meaning spine, head, and eyes not in alignment, um, and would come up to you and it would seek out physical touch or physical affection. Um, it would make physical the dog would make physical contact um, that would be sort of sustained and gentle. Um, and uh, it's human sociability, it is the single most important quality for a companion dog. And 
um, people have to understand that there aren't a lot of dogs left out there that actually have sociability. There's a lot of shelters, particularly in high crime urban areas where the dogs, there are very few um, sociable dogs. So, I mean, cue in the death threats, okay? <laughs> um, send them in because that's a, that's a controversial thing to say, but, sure. um, you know. Now, what do you attribute that to? Like you say, yeah, a high crime say. urban area. So is it that um, the people that are breeding are maybe doing so underground and they're not breeders or they're intentionally breeding for dogs that might not be friendly? No. Um, so, I, and I don't know why it is, but um, shelters in higher crime areas have more aggressive dogs. Um, that's my observation. And that's been, been observing that for decades. Um, and the shelters that have the sweetest, most sociable um, dogs are in the rural <laughs> South of the United States. And uh, um, I don't know why that is either. I have a whole bunch of, you know, ideas as to why that is, but um, so like when, when my old dog died and it was just me and my one dog and I was ready to get an, another one, I, I just made shelter visits. Um, I went to animal uh, services, open admission animal shelters, which tend to have more dogs and they have more turnover. And I went to rural, small rural shelters um, without a lot of resources because it's sort of what, who I wanted to help. And then, um, I just looked through the population of dogs there um, to find my next dog. And uh, I did. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask kind of on that. Why is it that the New York area tends to get like, I, you know, we got a huge number of dogs from the South. I don't necessarily see the dogs you're talking about. That's right. Um, I, That's right. I, my nickname for many of them is the Southern Savage. Yeah. Uh, because I see, I see a lot of them that have serious problems. Yeah. Um, and they oh. may actually do well with their family in the home they live in. But anyone outside of that family within that first couple day window or so mm -hmm. ends up becoming a problem for them. Yeah. Stranger directed issues, et cetera. And I'm wondering, well, one, one, I'm wondering why is that? And two, do you see this same problem in other States that you travel to when you go to shelters and observe dogs? Do you see that maybe a shelter in, uh, I don't know, in Colorado or somewhere else down South or, you know, somewhere on the West coast, do they have the same issues that a lot of like the New York area does? Um, so okay, there's a couple of things in there, but, um, sorry, no, no, it's, I love it. It's very stimulating. Um, so yeah, again, like, um, there are, trends in shelters. So again, higher crime urban areas and um, tend to have um, more aggressive dogs. And um, generally 
shelters that have a no-kill, quote-unquote, no-kill policy or do no euthanasia or very little euthanasia will have very little, they tend to have very little turnover. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and so there may not be as many <clears throat> adoptable dogs to choose from. There may be more problematic dogs. But um, here, here's an overview. So um, if you if you break down dog temperament into three categories, and uh, the categories would be the safe, um, friendly, highly adoptable pet dogs, the quote unquote good dogs, the dangerous dogs, which are um, unsafe in any environment, you know, and with anyone except for some dog trainer on TV who has a half an hour of good editing, make it look like that thing's cured. Um, <laughs> And then the middle, which are the gray area, the border borderline dogs. And so we can't just talk about dog temperament, right? Because a dog is a dog is not whole until the dog has a human or humans and an environment, right? So mm -hmm. we need to talk about this inseparable trinity of dogdom, which is a triangle, and at the top point would be the dog and the dog's temperament. And behaviors and on one other point is the human and the humans the dog will live with and the third point of the triangle would be the environment in which the dog lives and um, the quote-unquote good dogs can live with almost anyone lack of experience new owner young kids whatever and um, be successful or a trainer can and be successful and the good dogs can live in almost any environment and still succeed. So, you know, a condo with no fenced in yard, leash walks in an urban area, that kind of thing. Mm. A dangerous dog. Um, it doesn't matter who owns the dog or lives with the dog and in what environment the dog's likely to have a hospitalizing or worse incident in its lifetime because the dog has is so uh, violent. And then the borderline dog, which is what is filling our shelters and rescues um, right now. The borderline dogs are dogs, they can be successful with just the right human and humans and in just the right environment. And, um, and we haven't really studied that. Like, I can't tell you if you give me this borderline dog, I can't say, ah, yes, well, that dog would do best with this, you know, pushy type A aggressive kind of human in a suburban environment with a fenced yard. Like we don't, we don't know the perfect combination for the, the Trinity for gray area dogs. Right now what shelters and rescues just place them and they kind of throw the sewing needle out and then they throw the thread and they hope the thread somehow makes it through the little hole in the sewing needle so that somebody can actually sew something. Um, so it's, it's a, you know, it's a kind of a crapshoot. So, um, the shelters that have the higher population of good dogs, uh, safe, appropriate, very sociable pet dogs are in the rural South. However, we have been so steadily sterilizing, um, all the really great dogs that, and we're not breeding enough of them. Um, and so they're going extinct. 
very few of them left, even in the southern shelters. And and a lot of the trans a lot of the northern or urban shelters that are transporting southern or more rural dog populations up to do adoptions are not doing much of an assessment, if any at all. And so, you know, they're they're like taking dogs by how they look or breed type or whatever. And so you're getting lots and lots of problematic Southern dogs. There are a lot of problematic Southern dogs, um, just like there's problematic dogs everywhere. There's also some good ones. Um, but again, um, you know, the system is, is, is flawed right now in terms of the dog world and the whole, all the and things I, that. I, I feel like, and I wonder if maybe part of it's the environment, because we know that an environment can obviously affect the dog's behavior. And so when you're getting yeah. a dog from the rural South or some other rural area, and then we bring them into some uh, higher populated yeah. place like New York city or long Island, like where I am, yep. that environment is very different but, for many different reasons, yep. smaller spaces, more noise, yep. et cetera, et cetera. And that can affect their behavior, which maybe, you know, maybe is part of the problem too, which is why maybe we're seeing certain behavior issues pop up in mm -hmm. in the dogs versus maybe if they were elsewhere maybe we wouldn't see yeah. that necessarily show up yeah yeah totally you bet um i mean when you bring a dog into a leashed mm -hmm. environment or one where there are leash walks and um, lots of people and lots of dogs you take their flight away their flight option away and so if you have a fearful dog or a resource guarding dog that then becomes very stressful for them. They would, yeah. they would have um, probably done better in a quieter rural environment, or you know, like a lot of people rescue island dogs or oh, yeah. beach dogs, and um, or dogs from the reservation. And again, the the traits, the temperament traits that favor a uh, a street dog or a beach dog or whatever you want to call them. They're, they're off-leash, they're loosely associated with humans. They tend to beg to get food. Um, and so those dogs uh, in the temperament package tend to be on the fearful side, um, fearful more of, of strangers uh, rather than noises, but they can be overwhelmed by noises. And they tend to um, be resource guarders. And that helps them thrive in that environment uh, but you put them on a leash and you put them on a transport and bring them to Chicago and um, you can run into more trouble. Um, then again, this is huge generalizations. Uh, I, I like, uh, I, I actually don't, I think people should go get the dog that's right for them, whether that's from a, a great breeder um, or, you know, a shelter or a rescue. I'm not, I'm not a, rabid at this point, rabid shelter person or rescue person who thinks, you know, adopt, don't shop because um, there aren't, um, the priority should be that people are, are getting their best friend and a, and a yeah. great companion that is, that works for them and their environment. Um, and a great dog is a great dog. So. Well, I have one, I just have one question on that then uh, to, to bring it back to the initial question in the very beginning when I was asking you, what should the everyday dog owner 
mm-hmm. um, look for. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned having a professional trainer, behavior yeah. consultant come with you. So then my next question to that is going to be, how do they find the right person? How do they find that professional? Because there are some who I think would be able to identify certain things better than others. I agree. Especially in, in a shelter setting. So is there a way or is there is there some way someone should find that out? Or is there some way to help a dog owner find the right professional for something specific to this? That's a, such a great question because... Um, because I, I don't have the answer. I, I mean, you what? I, unless it's someone who's like really like studying your work. <laughs> to be very honest, I mean, I don't have an answer on on that, which is why I'm asking. Yeah, I don't have an answer either, except um, there's you know some trainer and behaviorists who could do it, and um, others who can't. One of the biases that some trainers and behaviorists have is that they look at a dog as a um, a series of behaviors that can be trained, shaped, modified, or, um, you know, they look at a dog as this sort of template of behavior modification protocols, and they're not, they're not deterred by certain problems. I remember walking through a shelter with a, a really good trainer once, and we were both looking at a chow akita mix big black dog and the dog was being walked by a volunteer and he urine marked on everything indoors and out i mean he just pissed everywhere and then he um he postured with other dogs and then he was really fearful of um like he passed me and i had a camera around my neck that dates me right it was a camera it wasn't a phone it was a camera <laughs> around my neck and um, he walked by and he growled. He got really scared of the camera. And um, oh, and then the trainer said, that, oh, that dog has really bad separation anxiety. Can't be left alone. He was adopted by two, two guys over the weekend and they returned him and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then I said, oh boy. And, and then we, she sort of said, well, you know, what would you do with that dog if you were in your shelter? And I said, look, to be honest, with all of those issues, I would probably euthanize him. And again, here, you know, send in the death threats. But at, at my shelter, we had limited space. And um, I would not knowingly adopt out a dog that's going to likely. So um, not I'm dead. sorry, I had a question going back to the three types of dogs that's going to okay. relate to this is okay, hold, hold thought, I just want to finish my oh, sentence. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut no, you no, off. No, so sorry. no, it's okay. But otherwise, it just sounds like all I want to do is euthanize dogs. But well, the that's exactly. That... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I thought that's the, what you were saying. <laughs> the, um, we kick them off, Sue. If you want, we'll kick them right off. I'm gone. So that trainer looked, asked me what I would do at my shelter. And I said, well, what, what about you? And she said, um, she said, well, like all those things are really treatable, like separation anxiety. You know, we can treat that. And you know, fear, uh, we can treat that and the urine marking. And, and she saw the dog as like a, um, a patchwork of behavior that needed modifying. And then I I remember saying, well, would you want to adopt him? 
And she didn't hesitate. She goes, well, not on your life. And I said, well, why not? She said, well, I know what it's like to live with those things. And I was like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> anyway, that was the point of my story is that trainers often see everything as a solvable. We have a protocol for that. We've got a protocol for that. I'm certified and I can help you with that problem. Mm. And that, that is a great skill to have when you have an owned dog with an owner and you're going in there to help them. It is not the same thing when you have a dog in a shelter who does not have an owner yet. Um, anyway, Vinny, sorry, I just need yes, to Yeah, so the, the way that that tied into my question for you is in the beginning, you spoke about the three types of dogs. You said one yeah. is just the safe, friendly, good dog. Then you have the dog dangerous. I think you said they're gonna put someone in the hospital in their life at some point. And then you have the third like gray area dog. So yeah. would it be fair to say, and maybe you'll correct me if I'm just taking it the wrong way, that the safe, friendly, good dog and the dangerous dog are not gonna be changed by either good or bad environment, training, it's almost, you could do all the wrong things with the good dog and it's still going to be good. And you could do all the best things with the bad dog and you're kind of wasting your time. So then is it just the gray area dogs that maybe we're working with successfully and you see, we can kind of like, is it that the gray area dogs can then be molded or changed into either a safe and friendly good dog or a dangerous dog, or is it just always going to be a gray area dog? That, well, what gray area means really is the dog's going to need is going to need to um, learn the joy of training, right? They they need to experience positive reinforcement and the idea that they that what their behavior matters and that the human can communicate with them. So that's training, and and every dog deserves that um, that kind of joy of positive reinforcement training. And um, however, um, really what we're doing with the borderline dogs, the majority of what we're doing is management. We're managing the environment, we're managing the dog and we're compromising on what it is to have that dog. In general, we're compromising, right? Um, so if the dog is, is dog aggressive, that person is going to try and increase the, the threshold. They're going to try to, you know, work with, just work with dogs at a great distance and do all the behavior modification and conditioning. Um, but they're also going to need to not walk the dog um, when there's lots of dogs. They can't go hiking where there are loose dogs. So there's, there's compromise. And, um, and uh, with a dangerous dog, it, it, unless you have amazing luck, um, the dog's likely to have a hospitalizing event during its lifetime. And with a really good dog, the dog may, and it's not to say he would never snap or growl, but he would never hospitalize somebody. The bite would be so inhibited. It would take so much to get the dog to an aggression threshold. Um, and so, but Generally, we don't train the really good dogs because they don't need training. And you hear people say it when they adopt them. Well, we were going to come to the free classes, but uh, he just does everything we want. You know, he listens and um, and uh, the dangerous dogs. Well, I think trainers are seeing more and more dangerous dogs these days and having to help people on a journey or through that or to understand it. Um, 
but the majority of what we see as trainers are gray area dogs, often um, with people who are unprepared for the behaviors and um, it's not what they thought they were envisioning and getting. And often we're seeing these dogs in environments that are not well suited for them. And it's, and it's really hard, right? So it becomes a real quality of life issue for a lot of our dogs. I can't even remember what your original question was. Yeah, no, that's, uh, don't even okay. ask me. I was all over the place. No, I think that, that answered it. Um, so then my follow-up would be to that is say with, let's say like puppies or younger dogs that might not have done anything damaging yet. So they mm -hmm. haven't bitten anyone. Mm -hmm. maybe they've growled a few times how what are you looking for to distinguish like is this dog going to be gray area is it going to be dangerous do you not know until a certain point do those dogs sometimes like is the beginning of their aggression kind of like testing are they kind of testing the water and then based on how those experiences or how they learn from those experiences will that change the trajectory of 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 a dog i know it's it's like all hypotheticals like if i took a three-year-old dog that's now biting people and i reversed them to five months old and i said here right. take this dog like what would you be looking for what might you be modifying or or changing and um, maybe even like body language stuff that would set you off like up oh, this dog is going to be a problem one day even though it hasn't done anything yet i mean most puppies um don't do anything really damaging mm -hmm. to seven months or so. I mean, mm -hmm. there are, are exceptions or sometimes dogs don't do anything significant till they're two, right? Two or three. Um, but, and again, um, the, the Trinity, the human, the environment and the relationship with the, the dog is, is kind of mysterious. <laughs> And uh, different concoctions can do things. And, um, and so I think it, you know, it depends. If, if you're talking about a, a three-month-old puppy, or uh, uh, for instance, I met a four-week-old um, puppy at a shelter once, four weeks old. It had just, he's been uh, walking uh, and trotting uh, in a balanced way for about, a, a week in his life. And um, the I gave the dog a little milk bone. We had those back in the dark ages. These were these little bone-shaped <laughs> biscuits. And um, somebody gave it to me and I gave it to the puppy. And I remember the puppy was offensively at four weeks, came wow. over, like took the milk bone, put it, came all the way up to me, frontal aligned, put the milk bone down and hard stared me and growled four weeks old. Mm. So like that takes that for me, that takes the puppy out of the gray area and into a more potentially dangerous category. Mm -hmm. However, like, I don't look at that four week old puppy and go, oh, well, we have plenty of time. You know, we are seeing this young. And so we have like, we can shape this puppy and mold the puppy. Um, um, in, you know, in, these are huge generalizations and I'm sure some of people listening are immediately inserting their own dog into it and getting terrified that their own dog's a dangerous dog, blah, whatever. But again, and it is very dependent on each individual animal. Um, but 
for the sort of borderline dog intervening before there's been a real event, bite event is really helpful. I think you can get more done before the, the yet has happened, right? Um, and, um, and I mean, yeah, I don't even know where I'm going with that. Just in slack. Okay. <laughs> I actually wanted to, let me jump in uh, to help yes. you with that because Thank I you. was just thinking of, I was just thinking of puppies for a second and I know I'm just visualizing when I go into a home where someone has hired me because they feel like their puppy is aggressive. Mm -hmm. And one thing I always look for is when I see the behavior occur or I'm understanding the behavior and then I see it occur, if I decide to maybe test the puppy, mm -hmm. I almost look for how adult-like is that response, if that yeah. makes sense. If I'm seeing a puppy display a behavior that looks more like an adult dog response, I'm like, we got a problem. Yep. And, you know, the other thing I always, I always tell people is visualize what you want in your dog. Like visualize what a puppy is supposed to look like. And are we seeing that behavior? Are we seeing that wiggly, goofy, right. stumbly, like right. weird goofy puppy behavior you know just like silly behavior or like little childlike behavior or are we seeing that lack of sociability like you said or uh some extreme possessive type of behavior a lot of maybe independence in yep. an, like in an adult fashion that that is concerning you know, so, so I, that, that's usually a red, those are like, yep. that's like a red flag for me is when I'm yes. seeing puppies that are displaying that more adult like behavior, so describe, like describe for me and, and people listening, I, yeah. I totally get it. I agree. But if you had to, um, describe what adult behaviors looks like, look like. Well, actually, uh, uh, just the example you gave is perfect with the milk bone, uh, and the four week old puppy. You know, it's one thing if if a puppy growls, maybe it just does a little growl or is mm -hmm. resource guarding and who knows what happened. Maybe, you know, there's a little overstimulation. The kids in the house were being annoying, whatever. Mm -hmm. But that's different than here. I handed you a bone and the puppy just places it there and stares at you like, what the F are you looking at? Mm -hmm. Like when I see like that type of response in a puppy, that's yeah. a problem for me. Right. Yeah, because I don't want you looking at me, or making yeah. me feel like I like I'm sitting there watching you say to me, "What the f are you looking at me for?" Right. Or like, "Why are you?" You know, like like that really. It's an overt uh, threat. Yes. Yeah. Stiff, stiff legs. Um, movement is stilted. Head is up. Tail is up. Things aren't moving much. Muscles are kind of tense the dog, the puppy moves or an adult dog too, moves in alignment, more like the military, right? Head, eyes, and spine aligned as opposed to the wiggle spine, the yeah. cashew shaped um, dog, the tail stays high or raises higher as opposed to lower, the base lowers and it wags so hard it's hitting its yeah. shoulder, right? Cause it's curled yeah. up, those, those things. Um, and a hard direct stare with very little blinking. 
Um, or if a puppy's even like coming at you, like it, not just that they growl, but then they decide to proceed forward with maybe lunging yeah. and then standing their ground. Like, it's not just like a little playful lunge or right. where the puppy was getting annoyed, like actually like standing their ground in some way. Um, right. You know, I, I like that type, all that type of behavior to me is generally more of a problem or, or red flag, especially when you're seeing it in a younger puppy, because a lot of times it just makes me think if you're doing this at four months, five months old, yep. what are you going to be like at six months or a year? Right. How much, how much more concerning or dangerous is this potentially going to be? And, right. and it doesn't mean that you potentially cannot manage and maybe modify certain things, but, right. but there's the, but part in it. Right. And, you know, who's in the environment of their children? Early. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the, the, the butt piece of it is long-term is it sustainable for the family to manage or deal with forever? Right. Uh, is it going to be safe? You know, if they, if they have kids or the kids are going to have friends over, right. is it going to be safe? Do you have to put the dog away every single time? Right. Um, you know, there's just so many, there's so many uh, layers to it. There's so many yes. things yes. that you so need to layers. look at, especially, especially with puppies. I mean, I don't know. Now I'm just going off. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, sort of describing things on a podcast where, you know, there's no dog in front of us or videos to look through because, you know, for somebody who's brought a puppy home and maybe they've never had a puppy before, or, um, Maybe they did when they were 12 and now they're 60. Um, without, you know, without a comparison there, it's hard to know. Well, is this loose and wiggly? This is just seems to be my puppy, right? Um, it, it can be hard for people, um, which of course is why I think people should meet with a, a good professional. And uh, again, going back to that question, how do you find somebody that... Um, you know, can go to a shelter or through uh, foster homes with you or through video and help you really assess what might potentially be a, a good fit dog or a really good dog for your, your home or what might be some red flags. Um, and I don't know. I mean, how do, you, how do you find a good trainer in the first place, right? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh now, 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 here we ding. go. Now she's wrenching <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I want to, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. I want to cut off anyone again. I'm going to get in oh, trouble no. over here. <laughs> so something I noticed with puppies is some of the more subtle signs um being still maybe maybe not seeking um out maybe a guest that comes over can be misconstrued construed as oh my dog is well trained like i don't have you know what i mean like yes, a, a new yeah, puppy yeah. sometimes yeah. they don't come because they're like oh well like he was good when people came over he never jumped he never right. you know he right. was I could bring him to the coffee shop and he just laid down on the floor and didn't yeah. do anything. Yeah. Um, so those are sometimes the signs that even 
when I try to explain to clients, you have to be careful because, you know, this is their new cherished member of their family. Yeah. And if you start yeah. saying like, oh, you're sweet little puppy that's sleeping on the floor. So like, you know, like an angel, it's a little, it's a, it's a red flag there. So I wanted to hear your, your view on maybe some of the more overlooked subtle things you know like obviously people think of like lip curls and showing the teeth and growls you know mm -hmm. a lot of uh maybe dog owners that are listening here so yeah what, what is your take on that type of stuff that's great um great question so um i a friend of mine recently got into vet school and so he's in his first year and in the first year of his vet school they have the students um, seek out a mentor um, who will work with them. The mentor is usually a veterinarian, but it can be anyone involved in animals. And so my friend um, asked if I would be his mentor. I was very flattered. And so for Christmas, um, like the things that I feel like I can give him as a future veterinarian is the ability to look at a dog structurally and physically and try and... Um, anticipate any problems or pain or whatever, and also behavior, obviously. And so uh, for Christmas, I took a little tiny field notebook and on every page, I wrote like a piece of wisdom that I thought might help him as a veterinarian. And one of the things he found really helpful was the page that said, um, beware of the still dog movement is your friend. And I don't know if that's the exact quote. I don't, I don't know exactly what I wrote, but um, like one of the things that I've observed is, um, is dogs that don't move their feet very much. And I know very much is not a scientific quantitative, um, <laughs> event, but, um, again, the, the package of stillness dog who doesn't move very much, even a puppy who doesn't move very much, particularly the feet, um, they stay in one spot, let's say. I can't even, I can't even give it. It has to be a little subjective if I'm not showing you videos. Um, and along with the lack of free movement, feet and spine and twisting and moving, um, the tail that goes up and is wagging really wide. Um, along with that, a potential red flag is when you see the whites of the dog's eyes a lot. And, uh, I call it whale eye because whales can't, they don't really have necks, right? So when they turn their heads, the whites of the eyes shows because they they can't um, really move their, their necks independently. Um, I used to think that a whale eye was simply a sign of stress. And what I've recently come to believe is that it's a red flag for guarding, resource guarding. And in resource guarding, I include um, cause most, most low threshold resource guarders, they're like, they don't just guard food. If, if even at all, they don't guard food. Um, they mostly guard humans. They mostly guard territory and very frequently they guard their own bodies. So they're, they're harder to do, um, to handle. Right. And so, but I'm, um, so again, so whale eye or whites of the eyes would be a red flag and it's either in an old dog it can be just a, a sign of arthritis right the dog's no longer moving his neck freely and so he has to look around with his eyeballs more than his head but most of the time with younger dogs 
um, or dogs who are physically fit, um, if you're seeing the whale eye, they are protecting something or someone or a space. So that is another tiny red flag. And now I know all whoever's listening to this is panicking. They look over at their dog and they're like, dogs giving them the side eye. I was, did, yeah. you, did you see me? I was looking over my shoulder at my dog. Like, <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> and, and to be look, um, some dogs have what's called a walleye, right? So um, they have a, an eye that <laughs> um, sort of is awry. It's not well-centered. And so some dogs, you'll see the whites of the eyes almost always showing in, in one eyeball or two or, or whatever. So, you know, don't panic. A whale eye would only occur every once in a while, um, not constantly, unless it was a physical thing. And so now um, with dogs that might be showing many signs at once, or I'm even trying to think of, you know, I have three dogs and sometimes when they're playing with each other, if I were to record it and watch it back in slow motion, like there's tongue flicks, there's whale eyes, there's all of this stuff where if I showed you one image, you'd be like, oh, wow, like that dog has is showing all these signs, but then it like, go like, then it just goes away. Like, so in yeah. play, do you notice that, like, uh, do you notice, or is it important what context this stuff yes. is in? Like my you one dog, her. if I take out a, yeah, if I take out a toy and he gets excited, he starts tongue flicking, you oh, know, yeah. and it's not that he's nervous, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, behavior is all about context. It, you know, there, and, um, yeah, so if we wanted to dissect play and talk about red flags in play, I would be naming certain things, not what I'm naming, just an overall mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. an overall thing. And the other thing I'll tell you about um, tongue flicks is that's like the one behavior that we all seem to have identified having to do with <laughs> There yeah. are like five different, at least, I mean, ask me in a year, there'll be 10, five different tongue behaviors that uh, Whoa! Okay. And <laughs> if you watch a dog, they often tongue flick, often, and, and it does. It's not in, in an aggressive sequence. So, uh -huh, like, uh -huh. they, they, a lot of them do it. You know, we have confirmation bias. We we look for it in the stress dog that we want. You know yeah. that that we're trying to to show um, somebody that you know it might be feeling uncomfortable, but. Um, they do it a lot, but there's a bunch of different licking that they do and tongue behaviors that all mean something different. And so the world is just very interesting. More to that mouth. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So without getting into all the tongue flicks, I don't know, Anthony, and I'm sorry. Like, like, you off again. Like, oh. I'm like, it's making me think. I'm like imagining because I, you know. This I is know. bad because you know what ends up happening. This is so bad. You shouldn't have even said anything. We should because now this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna tell you right now. Yeah. We're gonna hang up. An hour is gonna go by, and then we're gonna be texting until midnight with all these questions. And then the problem with Vinny is he sits there and he has these freaking thoughts, and then he sends them to me, and then I then like I start thinking. I'm and like, then Anthony doesn't sleep that night. That's I'm like this son of a bitch. Like now I gotta <laughs> sit there and I question everything. Like now like, I'm like you gotta oh. see this video of my dog's tongue that I just got. Now. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, I, so how about um? Okay, back into this type of thing. Um, dogs that that might just ignore like just ignore people. So mm -hmm. not 
not being reactive, not going towards, not lunging, growling, or even showing any stress signs, but just almost as if people don't exist. Yeah. What? And, uh, again, like when you say that I have in my head, the vision of a dog that I think is fitting what you're describing, and probably other people are having the vision of a, a dog that looks different, like the, that the dog in my head, but, um, so again, friendly, friendly is an action, not, a, not a, whatever. <laughs> I, don't know. But, um, I know we got to go out of our way to be friendly to people, right? <laughs> yeah. So a dog that doesn't approach, um, a stranger, um, and again, I guess I would qualify approach in a friendly way. This is so hard to do in a non-visual um, uh, thing is a concern, but like equally, I, I think it's problematic that we, we have all these breeds of dogs that we're specifically breeding for the standard, which calls for reserved with strangers or um, aloof with strangers. And it's like, okay, that's fine for your breed, but people who want a, a pet or a companion, that immediately is problematic um, because what, you know, the, the idea of the aloofness or not, not, um, not feeling comfortable and friendly with strangers, um, the, the line between aloof and fear aggressive is really thin. And, you know, to try and breed a dog that's reserved, that just stands there and doesn't actually back away from a stranger, but doesn't approach a stranger. It's like, um, impossible and um and and i mean for pet dogs for companions we need dogs that are are sociable that are affectionate that are seek it out now i know then that like there's a lot of trainers who are like well i don't want a, an insipid you know blithering friendly to everyone dog and it's like you can have a dog who's sociable, who doesn't try to approach everyone. That's training, that's exposure, that's you know how you raise the dog. Um, but what you want internally is the sociability, the high sociability to humans, which protects against stranger aggression, which protects against like the package of a highly sociable temperament dog gives you behavioral health. And anytime you have, um, either low sociability or a low aggression threshold, like an um, low aggression threshold, meaning the dog is too easily provoked into aggression in that category, whether it's to other dogs, whether it's uh, guarding, whether it's um, handling, whatever. The package of a dog who has a little bit of aggression or um, lacks sociability to people is your behaviorally unhealthy package. And with that comes all the anxiety that we see it, that's why we're getting all this separation anxiety, this huge um, increase in, in dogs with separation anxiety, because a lot of the gray area dogs that people are either breeding or um, adopting um, have, they, they lack behavioral health, they lack stability. Breeders need to be prioritizing sociability. Obviously, Look, if you're breeding flock guardian dogs and you're uh, and all the pups are going to working homes, keep breeding your working dogs. You know, if you're breeding a, a, a 
uh, ranch dog for your cattle ranch, keep breeding dogs that work and are successful at that. But if you're gonna breed for pets, then we need to be breeding um, dogs that are successful as pets without like <laughs> medication and without behavior modification and 15 trainers and you know management. We need to be um, breeding these packages of dogs who will um, be much more successful in the world today. And it's a very difficult world for dogs today, I'm telling you. It's not easy. I wanted to change it up for a second and mm -hmm. switch topics. Um, dinosaurs wanted... are a lot less controversial, okay? Sausage, <laughs> dinosaur eggs. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> You're an good. I just hate you so much right now. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Sausage. You're you stroking your, your beard over there. What did you say? Sausage? Sausage. No, I'm Vinny's trying to say it the way you yeah. say it. Uh, yeah, sausage. Yeah, no. <laughs> sausage, I said. Sausage. Uh, okay, okay. Vinny, Vinny says, instead of jargon, he says jargon. So, jargon. Oh, yeah. You can't make fun of me. Um, <laughs> so I want to I wanna change topics for a second. Um, I want to talk about uh, temperament testing. Okay. So, I, and maybe it's not really changing topics, but it's going more into the dog behavior, dog professional, um, area for a second. So one thing I have observed and it's becoming more and more common now mm. is there's a movement or a push to no longer yeah. temperament test dogs. And so for, for dog owners out there, for your average dog owner, the, uh, I'll, the Sue can actually, I'll let you explain like what a temperament test is. So people maybe don't understand that just like a simple watered down version of that. But, but why, why are we seeing this push for no longer temperament testing dogs, especially when they're in the shelter or they're in a foster home or they're in rescue and what are the, are there pros to that? And are there cons to that? Like what, what is your take on this? Because I know your specialty area is temperament testing. Yeah. So um, I would love to hear your thoughts on yeah. that. I'll give you some historical perspective. So I entered the shelter world in 1981 and uh, at that time, um, there was pretty serious overpopulation. I, I think in the 70s, the late 70s, I, I don't quote me on this, but I think in the late 70s, estimates were that we were euthanizing in this country's animal shelters between 20 and 30 million dogs and cats a year and um, staggering number. And so that thus began the great spay neuter campaign and uh, so right now, I, I actually don't know, but as of a few years ago, the current estimate was two, um, two million dogs and cats annually in our shelters, um, which is still a staggering number, um, but it's far less than 20 to 30 million. And we have, um, dogs generally have a much longer length of stay now who enter a shelter. There's more resources for many shelters. Um, and in the eighties, when I entered the shelter world, there were good dogs and there were borderline dogs and there were dangerous dogs. And the percentages were probably there were depending again, like 
urban areas have less behaviorally um, adoptable dogs. Um, and as far as I can tell, looking at my old um, photographs, because I didn't do video in the 80s, I did photos um, that uh, I, I think the populations were, it, it was fairly similar to what it is now in terms of urban and, and uh, rural animal shelters and populations. But in the 70s, we were just a slaughter of the innocent. It was just, just euthanized as, you know, just incoming and you euthanized and they came in and, um, and you were euthanizing good dogs, you were euthanizing borderline dogs and you were euthanizing bad dogs. And often you did it without knowing who was who, right? It was just, well, that dog's been here for five days. This is dogs just come in. And so you euthanize that way. Um, and when I started, um, I started assessing temperament um, and, and trying to have some sort of a triage, a behavioral triage system for dogs coming into my own shelter. I started a shelter in 1993 and I worked for everyone else's shelters before that. But I, I thought we should do behavior triage. And I felt like the priority should be these behaviorally adoptable dogs, even if they had a medical need, um, they should be prioritized. That's what the majority of people coming into shelters back then and today are, um, are um, families and just good people looking for a best friend, right? They're not looking for a project. Very few professional dog trainers who tend to like more difficult dogs. Very few dog trainers actually will walk into a shelter and go, I'm here to adopt a dog. You know, give me, uh, I like separation anxiety and I like some dog reactivity and <laughs> I can deal with resource guarding, whatever. I mean, trainers do adopt, but they don't walk into a shelter and, and do it that way or apply, whatever. But um, the adopters are people just looking for a great companion that will fit into their lifestyle and make them happy and they want to make the dog happy. And, um, and so that's of course what we need to prioritize to have available for adoption. And so the, again, as I said earlier, we are, we're really sterilizing all the very best dogs. They're the ones that the public adopts first and, um, and, and so there are fewer and fewer of those really, really sweet, great dogs. There are more and more um, borderline dogs and there's way more dangerous dogs today than there ever were. And so if in 1981, I went into a shelter, let's say they had 50 dogs and I was gonna do some behavioral triage and I was gonna do a set of assessment procedures to try and distill those dogs into three categories, right? Um, I would have maybe what, 25, 30% good dogs, um, maybe 25, 30% borderline dogs. And I can't do math at all, but the remainder <laughs> are the dangerous ones. And I would do that. And um, so the dangerous ones would be euthanized first. The highly adoptable dogs would be prioritized for the adoption floor. And then the borderline dogs who will have a longer length of stay much more restrictive adoptive profile. And so the right person for the borderline dog and the right environment is going to take a long time to find. And so you don't want a shelter filled with borderline dogs because they're not going to move. They're not going anywhere um, because it takes a really long time to find just the right person and just the right environment. Um, and so 
behavior assessment back then made sense and it was palatable, right? Because you wanted to prioritize all the, the good dogs, make sure they don't get euthanized. You have to euthanize. You had to euthanize back then because of the volume. And so it was okay to euthanize the dangerous dog, get them out of the communities. So fast forward to today and where you have in some shelters, zero or maybe 1% um, behaviorally adoptable dogs, you have maybe 60% borderline dogs. And then you may have maybe 29, okay math, 29% uh, dangerous. And so you're, and you don't wanna euthanize at all because <laughs> uh, you, you know, you're low kill or whatever you wanna call yourself. Um, and so, becomes uh, much more difficult. Um, and there are some shelters that have like a lot of really dangerous dogs. And let's say you wanna start implementing a, some sort of temperament assessment. You have 20 kennels. And let's say you're in a high crime urban area and you've been holding these dogs cause you don't wanna euthanize. And so your shelters, the, the first to, to go are your highly adoptable. So those dogs were adopted out and the ones you took back in are not highly adoptable and they're borderline or, or dangerous. And so you do an assessment and you find out that 20 dogs are problematic. And you find out that um, eight are borderline, need just the right home, just the right environment, no small kids, no other dogs, no cats, um, blah, blah, blah. And then what if 12 are dangerous? So then you, you can't just euthanize most of your population. You can't, and I'm not saying that's what, you know, you should do, but what happens is you're faced with, um, hang on, I gotta put a light on, it's dark in my house. Um, you're faced with, what do you do? Like, because what what's going on is that there are a lot of dangerous dogs and there are a lot of problematic dogs and there are very few highly adoptables. There's more highly adoptables you know, in the rural South and shelters that get no help at all. Um, they tend not even to be on PetFinder or any of the internet sites. Um, and there's still good dogs there. Um, still not the majority, but there are still good dogs. And so what do you do? So, so in order to remain with a very low euthanasia rate or a what we call a high live release rate, um, a live release rate is dogs that make it out of the shelter alive and don't get euthanized, whether that's returned to owners or sent out to a rescue or adopted. In order to do that, I think shelters avoid doing an assessment because the less you know, the easier it is. Um, I I occasionally like have a local friend and the friend will be like, look, I found, I found this six month old dog and he's really great, but I was wondering if you could help me place him. So I meet the dog and the dog is leash reactive, barking at other dogs. Not dangerous, um, but is going to need, immediately I know the dog's gonna need um, management and it's gonna need an owner who's gonna work with a trainer to deal with the leash reactivity to find out how bad it is. And immediately, like I know that the dog won't be the easy hiking companion that everyone in my area wants. And so I'll say to that person, you don't want me to help you find a home for this dog. I can't help you because I feel ethically responsible as the trainer behaviorist hat wearer that says, you know, if you want to adopt a dog for me, 
And I, I'm going to tell you, look, this dog is uh, leash reactive. This dog is barks and lunges when she sees other dogs. Um, and um, if so, it's going to, you know, it's going to be, we can train her and we can work with her, but it's going to be a, a fair amount of time. Um, and again, it's different as a trainer, if somebody hires me, cause they already have that dog and they already love the dog. But if the dog doesn't have a home yet, the only home I can find for this reactive leash reactive dog where I'm not duping them, I need somebody who truly understands what it's like to have a lunging barking dog and what it's like to do the training, the, ma the management and the conditioning. And then some of the compromises you may make, it may be temporary, it may be permanent, right? Depending on how the dog grows up. Um, but the only person who knows what it's like to live with that reactivity is somebody who's had a reactive dog before. And in general, people who've had a certain behavior problem before and a lifetime of either training or management, whatever, they, if given the crystal ball for the next dog, they don't want to do it again. They're like, well, I like this dog, but I'm going to wait. I'd rather, I want to be able to take my dog hiking off leash. I want to be able to, you know, walk in the parade with other people and their dogs. And so um, the more you know about behavior and training, the more you know about behavior modification, the more you know about temperament, the harder it becomes to place a dog. It's much easier to place a difficult problematic dog when you haven't identified all the difficulties where you haven't identified the quite where the aggression thresholds are. Um, and so you hope that the person that is looking at the dog falls in love. Like the more you know, then you have to say, look, I can't tell you if this one-year-old dog in a, in a year or two from now will actually bite somebody who comes to your home. That will depend on the rest of the Trinity. That'll depend on circumstances and your training and your management and the environment. But, um, okay, so now I have, I just have follow-up. So that was, you also, when you were answering that question, I noticed you were saying, you were talking about live release rate and all that. For me, when I hear that, I think of, okay, that's the shelter, the rescue, that's not maybe the trainer or behavior professional. So I know going to a lot of these, uh, a lot of seminars, workshops, conferences, mm -hmm. there are plenty of training and behavior professionals out there who don't necessarily agree with or fully believe in temperament testing. So I'd be curious mm -hmm. to hear your thought on, on that specifically with trainers and behavior professionals. It's one thing I think, you know, when you have maybe the shelter or rescue organization right. maybe doing those things, yeah. but what about like, what's the reason that trainers, cause that's what I want to get to the bottom of. Cause I, you know, I have my own, um, I have, I don't even know that I have my own thoughts on it. I know like my thoughts are more, well, what if we don't temperament test, we don't have information about a dog what do like then what else do you do what else do you have so like those are where my thoughts go because yeah. i know a lot of trainers will argue especially like not to put you on the spot or in the hot seat but mm -hmm. you're known for using the assess a hand yep. um in your temperament tests with resource guarding and a lot of trainers do not like using that yep. um and and a lot of people there, there's a lot of like arguments in the training community about that 
So I'd be curious, yeah. um, like, what else do we do if we don't do those things? What yeah. else? Just to clarify for the listeners that might not know what that is, you're talking about the fake the hand. Fake, yeah, the fake hand. That fake you, hand on a stick. Yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, so I invented the assessor hand. I called it the assessor hand. I invented it decades and decades ago because I would visit shelters and they were assessing dogs for food aggression by kicking the food bowl while the dog was in the kennel or using a broomstick to pull a food bowl away. And so I thought a fake hand would be a lot less stressful to the dog. And um, because it provided a safety buffer, the dog could be tested outside the kennel where it was probably a lot more fair and less competitive. So that was the, the assess a hand. Um, so one thing I will say about, first of all, everyone assesses dogs. It just, it, right. Like, even if you just are looking at that dog, you're doing some sort <laughs> yeah. of an assessment, right? You're comparing dog A to, to dog B uh, or just whatever. And so whether you do any formal assessment or not, that's why I make like the, the DVD of the ethogram. Like I just want to train people to see all these behaviors. If you can see all the behaviors, I don't care what, what you call it, you know, you're just going to start seeing differences in dogs. And that's what's important. Um, and, um, but so one of the arguments against assessing dogs, particularly shelter dogs, is that the shelter environment is so stressful that it's an unfair place. You, you know, you can't possibly assess them. They just, they're not going to show like how they would normally show in a home. And so absolutely, it is a terrible, stressful environment. It's frustrating, arousing, scary. It's a horrible place for a dog. Um, and they are all affected by it, and uh, but they're all there. Um, the reason why you can assess a dog in a shelter in particular is because of the trinity. You've taken a human out. The environment is all the same for all the dogs, albeit a very stressful environment. But as long as you're with the behaviors that you're looking for aren't like, you can't expect the dog in the kennel to behave the way the own dog on the couch is going to behave. Um, and uh, so you're looking for different responses. You're looking over time. If you do enough dogs, you begin to see these are how the behaviorally adoptable dogs behave in this circumstances during these, you know, steps that you do. And these are how the borderline dogs show uh, their responses if in, you, in the steps that you do and the assessment steps that you do. And the dangerous dogs do X, Y, and Z. And, and you're not looking, you're not expecting the dog to look like he or she looks in, in the home. Um, but you are, so the dog um, are stressed, which is why if, if you, if you're assessing a dog and he's a little inhibited and not, and maybe a little submissive instead of bold and cocky and pushy and forthright, that's appropriate, right? He's in a stressful environment. If he's bold and pushy and cocky and mm -hmm. forward in the shelter, what's he going to be like when he gets rooted into the home? So again, the shelter environment takes the, the inseparable trinity and it cleans it up. Um, and as long as your assessment takes into account the stressful nature of a shelter, you can do assessments. But if you're even, you're, we're doing assessments all the time. Every veterinarian and vet tech does an assessment, every, every animal they meet. Um, we all do it. We're looking at the dog. We're looking at the tail, the eyes, 
the movement. And we're doing that to figure out what we should be doing next. So assessment is, is really important, no matter what you call it. Um, so, but the thing is, in the shelter, like um, assess a pet is the assessment procedure, procedure that uh, protocols that I created. And it basically looks for four uh, components to the dog. And it, it's basically looking at four aggression thresholds. Um, and it's looking at the sociability of the dog. And so the aggression thresholds are dog to dog aggression. Um, handling and um, owner-directed aggression, resource-guarding aggression, and stranger-directed aggression. And um, getting visited by a jaguar. I saw that. I was worried it was a dinosaur clone that you made <laughs> at first. I was disappointed to find out it was only a cat. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so anyway, we're assessing for those four thresholds in sociability. When it with assess a pet, if you that's and we use the uh, assess a hand to safely um, assess a dog. We use a food bowl and we use a, a chew toy like a pig's ear and we use an inedible ro like rope toy to test for resource guarding. It isn't a one-on-one -on -one correlation. So in other words, like the dog who growls over his food during an assessment doesn't predict that the dog will growl over his food in the home. It simply lets you know that the dog has a low threshold for resource guarding. How it will manifest in the home depends on the owner, the environment, and the relationship of the three. Um, most dogs with a low threshold for resource guarding, the majority of them, this is the how they manifest in the home. They ultimately end up guarding an owner or territory. So there's stranger issues. There's often you know, jealousy between um, multiple people in the household or toward children. Um, or there's handling issues. Again, I attribute that to a low threshold resource guarding. And here's the here's the the weird clinchers. Uh, the um, you also get unleash reactivity, dog to dog reactivity. It's a low threshold resource guarding. That's why we see so much of it. Um, and if you couple low threshold resource guarding with low sociability, you almost always get really bad separation anxiety. Why is that? I don't know, because it's not a behaviorally healthy package. And because I think the dog who guards and owns things doesn't, I think the that dog falls apart when she or he is alone in the home and the things that they guard are gone or left without them or whatever. But anyway, so again, we're assessing to look at these thresholds. The dog with a low threshold for dog to dog aggression um, is also like, you know, kind of an unhealthy package. Um, but the thing about like, when your assessment, particularly resource guarding, the dog with a low threshold for resource guarding is likely, more likely to be dog to dog aggressive in the home if there's more than one dog. Like the source of most dog to dog aggression issues in a home is resource guarding. Um, and so anyway, uh, assess a pet looks at those five things. It's basically trying to identify the dogs where those thresholds will 
unlikely be met in the lifetime of the dog. And it's trying to identify the highly sociable, um, non-aggressive in all categories dog who could thrive with just about any person in just about any environment. And so I think it's a service that we would do for the dog to try to find the best placement and life for the dog, as well as the adopters. So, and um, um, I, I, I don't, when I do private behavior consultations or training, I don't usually do a formal assessment. Every once in a while, if, um, if um, like I might wanna uh, actually assess the dog for dog to dog aggression, if he's lunging and barking to find out what, what would happen if the owner dropped the leash, like it, it, what would happen if the management event, management failed. Um, but in general, I just use my powers of observation. And when you're in a home with the family and the dog, it is hard, harder to tweak out like, oh, is that the dog and his temperament? Or is that that person interacting with that dog? Or is that because it's really hot in the house and it's the environment? Um, or is it all three? Which is why I find it problematic. The trend right now is to, and I know I'm all over the place, like you need to edit this. I love this. it. This is how I think too. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, finally, um, I'm not the only one doing this. <laughs> no. Um, but um, the the trend right now is to say that dogs shouldn't be assessed formally in the shelter. They should just go into foster homes and we should get hear from the foster people. That's the what, assessment, foster home assessment, right? <laughs> yeah. And the prob big problem with that is it's completely biased. Like that, to me, that seems like the most unscientific recommendation. Um, it's the whole problem with breed rescue and really good breed foster people. They are so good with their breed that they often cut off or thwart or avoid behaviors that would erupt because they're so good at management. Like in a foster home, you can't tell who the dog is. Maybe the dog is completely suppressed and not engaging with the other dogs because the other dog in the home is a, a, a you know a serial killer who is who is like looking at the foster dog going, "You try anything, you're dead. Everyone else here knows it, but you don't." And so the dog behaves really well with other dogs in the yeah. household. But you have no idea is like, what are the thresholds for that particular dog? You only know how he's being influenced by the other dogs. And again, like a really good foster person is somebody who's really skilled with dogs. They cut off behaviors without even knowing that they're doing it. They tend to have more than one dog. And so the dogs are rotated or crated. Um, there's a lot less one-on-one -on -one intimate time spent with the dog, the foster dog. And so you put it, you know, you can have that dog three months and you're like, he was great with my kids and he was great with my other dogs. He was good with my cats. And then he gets adopted and in the first weekend bites the kid and attacks their family dog. And you end up blaming the adopter. But what it is, is there, there wasn't an assessment. You only knew how that dog was in that one environment. And the person who influenced the dog and the other dog who influenced the dog, you know, didn't give you the, what I think is a better picture of the dog. And I, I just want to say also with temperament testing, I my outlook is because I know initially when I was maybe told or taught like it's not necessarily everything or or whatever 
right. think one thing about temperament testing that we have to remember is it's just a test. It's just information. It doesn't mean you need to do whatever it is you feel that it's go like the end result is going to be, but yeah. it's just information. So I know a lot of people might get concerned. Oh, well, if we temperament test and that dog fails, oh, well then now they're going to be pushed to the line to be euthanized. But, but that's, you know, I don't, that depends on the procedures obviously and protocols of the rescue or shelter. However, um, I, I think it's just important to say that temperament testing is just information. It doesn't mean that it is going to be this or that type of result, right. but at least information. Right. And also, again, you know, people actually don't like the word test um, because it implies a pass or fail. In, in my opinion, a dangerous dog is a fail. And in my opinion, a dangerous dog shouldn't go out into the community. Um, and, uh, it doesn't have to be anyone else's opinion, but that's my, my opinion. <laughs> and, um, and so, but an assessment, it gives you this, the template, right? It gives you these five, the four aggression thresholds and some sociability. It gives you a template from which to work. It can tell you, okay, well, this dog could be a little reactive, with dogs passing in front of his kennel. So it tells you, let's not put him in this first kennel where he's gonna get the most traffic. This dog um, is gonna show better um, up front in, in the director's office where it, you know it's carpeted or whatever. It tells it gives you information what to do with each dog and how you can better get to know the um, and un unwrap the whole package of the dog. And again, it's not a perfect system and it, it can, can't be never, never is with dogs because of the, the Trinity and the influence of people in the environment, but it's a place to start. And if you did, I don't care if you did made up five things to do with every dog, like you did jumping jacks for 10 seconds, you, um, you blew out of a straw and five things, make them up. I don't care what they are, but you did the exact five things and you did it on 500 dogs. You would start to see a distribution of behaviors. You would see the most common responses. And then if you followed those 500 dogs into the rest of their lives, like homes or how they, how they fared in the kennels or whatever, you would get a better idea of what the responses to your five weirdo things would do. It doesn't tell you the be all and the end all, but um, it gives you a lot more information. It's like, if you go in for a blood transfusion, you assume that somebody has typed and cross-matched and, 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 and filtered the blood for um, HIV and hepatitis and, and other um, transmissible diseases so that when you need the transfusion, you're assuming that the blood transfusion, the blood that you're getting is that, that a professional has looked at and to the best of their ability, um, um, made it safe for you and compatible. And, um, I, again, going way back to the beginning of this, um, podcast, when you're asking, you know, about, um, people adopters, what can, what can they look for? And, I think adopters assume that the dogs have been screened um, and that the waiver that they sign when they adopt saying that, you know, it's a total crapshoot and don't sue us if the dog bites, they think that's just, you know, legal verbiage. But um, 
um, like every, God, every adopter that has brought home a dog that killed somebody or mauled somebody in the interview, they always say, well, I never thought that the shelter would give us um, the dog that would do this. And um, so I, I don't know. I don't know where the trend is going to go in the sheltering world. I think it's it's well, that's difficult. what I wanted to ask you, because you, you've said it a few times that, you know, there's like no, there's not a lot of good dogs left. Um, mm. What, what are you attributing that to? And like, is it, or is it, what is it motivated by? Um, is it just random? Or do you find that there are moments in time that you're like oh that choice is starting to steer us towards this and then how do we what do you find is a way out of this um we need to be breeding pet dogs and we need to be breeding um we need to get our heads out of uh, the limitations of of a purebred um we need to be as ray coppinger used to say like the breeding of sled dogs is the most successful breeding program there is. Um, if you if you buy a sled dog puppy from a litter, you're pretty much 100% of that litter are gonna be able to do what you want it to do. Are they all gonna be lead dogs? No, but will they all like enjoy pulling a sled? Yeah, because sled dog people, first of all, it's form and function. They're not, Alaskan Huskies are not a breed. And you're breeding this dog that's proven runner and you're breeding him to this dog who's a proven uh, mushing dog and you're breeding them after they've proven themselves. And um, you're getting puppies that are will be successful at the job that their parents did so well. That's what we need to do for pet dogs. And so right now, the, the, the way we run things is we sterilize all the pet dogs and even really good breeders, still they sterilize the pet dogs and they leave intact the ones that are successful in the show ring or um, whatever. And um, and so, yeah, you're, maybe the dog that's in the show ring is also a successful pet, but you'd increase your odds if we could somehow breed the most successful pet dogs to the most successful pet dogs. And then we could get physical health as well if we stopped the inbreeding of purebreds. Um, you know, there's certainly some purebreds that are still um, somewhat healthy, but it's all a closed gene pool. But even so, like, even if let's say you're, you're breeding Australian shepherds, how many Australian shepherds would you recommend to an inexperienced first time family with three young kids? How many, would you ever say like, that is the perfect breed for you? Or would you say to them, yes, a cane of Corso, that would be a good family pet. Or, you know, name most of the breeds out there and would you recommend them for first time owners, small kids, condo, leash walking? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> As a trainer, you wouldn't. And, um, but I mean, you could breed Australian shepherds that, um, you know, that could be really easy dogs for first time owners. You'd have to water down some of the Aussiness. You'd have to water down some of the Cana Corsoness. Um, and then when you water it down, what physical picture do you get, right? Like how much of, of what the dog looks like uh, relates to how the dog behaves. But anyway, everyone should be allowed to breed, but what we need more of are breeders who are just breeding good dog to good dog. 
prioritizing sociability. Well, and I, I see, not to cut you off again, but so you're putting yourself in a tough spot because I almost see how people that are into going to breeders and people that are going to go to a rescue would both disagree with that because the breeders are going to say, hey, I want my you know, working line, whatever, and I don't want it to be mixed with other blood and I want it to preserve the breed. Yeah. And then the other side is going to say, hey, there's plenty of these dogs that need to be rescued. Why are you breeding more? And then it's like this right, right. third lane in the middle. So what do you say to almost both of the, you know what I mean? Because well, now it's like, all, who are your, who, you know, you got like, enemies on both sides. <laughs> they're enemies everywhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, they're yeah. all among us. I hear them. People they're listening love right an now. enemy. No. <laughs> um, people hate the gray area, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We hate to feel uncomfortable. And so yeah. the way we feel comfortable is we rely on reputable breeders who are breeding purebreds who are, you know, really doing careful and good work mm -hmm. and um yeah those everyone should still do what they're doing okay you're a good breeder be a good breeder you're breeding livestock guardian dogs so that and you're selling them as livestock guardian dogs keep doing what you're doing we need those we need uh ranch dogs we need herding dogs um you know we need sport dogs for people who like sports what we need most of are pet dogs for um for for people the rest of us who want a safe dog that they can do go hiking with they can you know take the dog to a cafe and whatever um and so we need everyone can still do what they want you want to rescue you keep rescuing i know i will you want to breed and you're a good reputable breeder i don't care what you're breeding if you're doing a good job keep doing what you're doing but some of us are we need to find people who can just take a good dog and breed a good dog to a good dog. And um, the thing about breeding is I come from the shelter world and in the shelter world, <clears throat> we see the full spectrum of dog behavior and temperament. And in the shelter world, <clears throat> again, excuse me, you see the really good dogs, the dogs that trainers never see sweet. They, they, they didn't get socialized, but they can still cope with everything that's thrown at them. We don't know how they do it, <clears throat> where they come from, but these fantastic dogs. We also see the deadly dangerous dogs. Trainers don't see those either. Uh, you're starting to, but uh, used to not see them because people would not keep a dog that mauled somebody, but now people do. Um, and so I don't even think we're setting for breeders, we're setting the bar high enough like we should be breeding some of the qualities that were in these really great, the really great dogs that I see in the shelter, used to see in the shelter world a lot of, we should be breeding puppies that if somebody didn't socialize them the right way or even at all, that they could still come out and thrive in the world. They'd be like, oh, that's a train. I can deal with the train. Oh, that's a truck. I can deal with the truck. Even though they didn't get all that critical stuff. Like you could breed a dog that doesn't pull on leash. Did you know that? <laughs> you can. And, but that's like not something that people are putting into their breeding program. You can breed well, I a, wish they did because my freaking job would be yeah, so obviously, much yeah. easier. It's like the thing I hate training. <laughs> well, it's hard. So I, right? I still, I still want to, I, I want to, and I want to 
preface this by saying I am not saying that this is what I support or my it's just an idea I'm trying to figure out how this would actually be implemented it almost seems like you would have to so the breeders are still breeding yeah and then the shelters would have to have a criteria that was so strict that would then ultimately lead to the euthanasia of a lot of dogs and then we would have to find a way to make it almost extremely illegal to breed a dog in your backyard to the point that you're going to jail for like 30 years. So no one would ever do it. And it would push it so far underground that if you wanted a, you know, a, a French bulldog, you would need to pay $50,000. So it wouldn't even make sense to do it. And then it would be like the shelters would then become breeders of pet dogs because they would have the most dogs that aren't purebred but are good dogs and then it would be like like i'm trying to figure out how would this actually go how would this actually be be done if it were to be well first of all it's a it's controversial in the shelter world right now because <clears throat> some shelters um want to get into breeding so that they have interesting product um not to be sound crass um and not saying i agree or disagree and other shelters are like, we should not be in the breeding business. You know, mm. we are are here. There's so many other things that we could be doing in the community rather than <clears throat> breeding dogs. But um, well, it's already starting. There are very small pockets of uh, bright people who know dogs who are starting a breeding program and they're taking, they're, you know, getting a dog off Craigslist. That's really nice and they're breeding it to, sometimes they'll breed it to um, an underground uh, purebred male of some breed that's really nice, has all the qualities. And then of the F1s, they're gonna <clears throat> look at who's you know really nice. So, um, and so it's already starting. A few, a few people here and there are starting to um, try and breed good pet dogs. And it might take a few generations as it took generations um, to, you know, to get a pedigree and a, and a, a, and a good breed um, as well. Um, but the, the function, like the AKC has, you know, the sporting group, the terrier group, the herding group, the working dogs, it needs the, is it the ninth group or whatever, the pet dogs. And and again, like, I know that when I say that there's a lot of trainers out there who are like, well, yuck, I wouldn't want a pet dog. I don't want a goldfish. I want a real dog. <laughs> and it's like in, when you're breeding a pet dog, there's, there's a whole range of playfulness and sass and, and whatever. You just don't want the aggression. Um, and there's different qualities and different sizes. And I think, I think people sometimes think that pet dog is implies something ugly, right? Like especially trainers. And I'm like, no, a great pet dog. Like I want, I have great pet dogs. That's what I selected for. And they're great sport dogs and they're great hiking dogs. And, you know, they have a, a dash of of mischief. They're just not <laughs> aggressive. They're not going to hospitalize anything in their lifetime. And, um, but anyway, the majority of dogs, like if you're, if you're a dog trainer, I mean, like hit me on the head. Don't you just want people to have nice dogs? Wouldn't it be a lot easier? I, um, almost all the 
I don't do lots of dog training anymore, but almost all the cases that I see are behavior consultation for really problematic behavior, right? And um, recently I got a text from somebody I didn't know. And, and he said, hi, are you the dog trainer in your town? And, and I'm like, yeah, no, I'm one of them. And he, he said, I wanna buy my parents. They have an out of control puppy and I wanna buy them some dog training lessons for Christmas. And so I was like, mm, well, okay. And uh, so I talked to him on the phone and I said, you know, we could start with one and, and see how, you know, depends how motivated they are, how far they wanna go. And, and then he said, um, he said, well, my mother's motivated, uh, but my father's not. And he said, uh, and he said, let's do three. I want to pay you for three. So I was like, okay. So he pays me for three and I get a call from the, the owners and, uh, I make the appointment. I go there and I walk, first of all, I ring the doorbell. There's no barking. <laughs> what do they have? They have a six month old dachshund. When was the last time you didn't hear a dachshund bark? <laughs> so I go in and I am greeted with the most charming, sweet. I mean, I, I, I even said to the people, I'm just fussing over him. And I was like, you have got to understand. I said, it never goes like this. I said, <laughs> and then I said, I would love to tell you that this isn't going to work out and I should take your dog. And you know, the whole session, I, we did three and then they want more. But what I realized is this is why I became a trainer. Like what was their out of control puppy? When he, when he burst out the front door, if he saw a neighbor out, um, it's a dead end street. If he saw a neighbor, he'd get excited, loves people, would go running over and they couldn't get him to come when called. <laughs> or he would run next door, go in the neighbor's dog door and play with their dog. <laughs> was their out of control puppy. But what I realized is like, there was just this completely different um, system in place than what usually happens in my training. So first of all, the family, Oh God, they're, they're, they have the perfect dog for them. And the dog is really happy and they're really happy. They have this sociable dog. And as a trainer, I'm really happy because it's just fun to do dog training again. But I feel like the world needs more. I'm not saying dachshunds, but this one happened to be <laughs> just primo. It could have come in any package, but he was a dachshund. What was good about him is he could exercise in a small yard and um, he got a lot of exercise being leash walked by an elderly person. So he's a really good fit for them. But I feel like we need a lot more good fits. We need a lot more dogs that don't have quite as much instinct for what they were originally bred to do, which is pretty much not appropriate for most homes today. We need, we need great pet dogs bred from great pet dogs. We need to sort of change, change the system. I'm yeah, because not... to be fair, they are living with us differently than they were. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're not working as much. They're chilling yeah. on the couch and relaxing. They're not running in a field for twenty hours a day. Searching yeah. for dinosaur bones. Searching yeah. for dinosaur bones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, Sue. Well, thank you so much for. For joining us, say this is such an awesome conversation, and I, I know I really enjoyed it. I'm sure, I'm sure that the listeners are gonna 
have a lot of takeaways from this. And uh, why don't you tell us where everyone can find you, your your website, your information, et cetera. Yeah. First of all, I want to thank you guys for having me. And and I know like it's kind of hard to rein me in, I think. And I I, I go off and lose my train of thought um, and say things that are say things that are, <clears throat> you know, hard to take or jarring or I'm make- used to it. I'm friends with Vinny. So like I am so conditioned <laughs> to it at this point that oh, I don't even realize like that anymore. Um, but I, I love being here. I loved I loved talking with you guys very much. Um I can be reached at suesternberg.com and uh um and uh you can email me through that site. My email is suesternberg at iCloud.com. I'll give it to you for me in in a you know a week or so. Um then uh email again with without being all nasty and and you know, don't be like, well, I haven't heard from you. You just say the things like, I think maybe my last email went into your spam. So I thought <laughs> I'd send this again and then I will respond. Um, but anyway, um, I don't mind hearing from people. I know I say a lot of things that that pose way more questions than answers and that um, I, I love starting sentences with what if, you know, what if the way we're doing things isn't the best way or what if this and and I know that it can make a lot of people uncomfortable and make you think differently. And that's, uh, that's, uh, not a horrible thing. So people can contact me with, with questions or, um, or to disagree. Um, so that's okay too. And you guys can too, you can email me because. Right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for starting the canine classroom too. It's great. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the canine classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends and give us a rating until next time class dismissed.